name is Father Hillary, and I am a grateful, recovering alcoholic. Good evening. I'm a member in good standing as of last Tuesday night of the noble group of alcoholics at Tolman, Alabama. And I am everlastingly grateful to the higher power whom I choose to call God, the God of my understanding, to the principles of this program and to many people just like you for being able to stand in front of you this evening. Alcohol robbed me of the two things that I loved the most in life and still do. Number one was my priesthood, and number two was St. Bernard Abbey and College. And if you had told me in 1967, in that December, that it was possible for me ever again to offer Mass or stand in a pulpit or to be at St. Bernard's, I would have told you, no way. It can't be. You cannot put Humpty Dumpty back together again. It cannot be. And yet here I am today. And I can say Mass. And I can fill a pulpit. And St. Bernard has been given back to me in a way beyond my wildest dreams. And so if nothing else ever happens to me, I'm grateful, and I hope I can stay that way a day at a time. Lest I forget my manners, I want to thank Carter and the committee, that nebulous thing that runs AA, and my dear chairman and anybody else who had anything to do with getting me here. I'm really here by mistake. That Carter, he called me up on the telephone. I wanted to come to this so bad I could taste it. And uh, one of my sponsors was coming, and he didn't make it because Almighty God called him to himself about three or four weeks ago. He died a day at a time, just like he lived. He was in his 70s, been in AA 20-something years. Beautiful man. He told me he was coming. I wanted to go so bad I could taste it. And I thought, oh, Lord. Let me see. I went home and I looked. I said, I haven't got the money, and the time's wrong, I think. I just can't do it. And about three nights later, the phone rang, and it was Carter. And he says, uh, this is Carter so-and-so from Louisville, and uh, I'm on some kind of committee for the Southeast, and we'd like for you to come up and speak. And uh, I said, when is it? And he gave me the wrong date. He gave me next week. And I said, yes, I'll come. When he wrote, it was these dates. And ooh, I, I really, I, if he had told me these dates to start off with, I would have had to say no. But since I said yes, then I said, okay, here we go. So I don't exactly know. This man talked about coincidences in AA. I don't believe there are any coincidences in AA myself. And I'm here for one purpose that I do know. And that's to try in some way to carry the message. Some of you heard me, and I'm, 
See, you know, you wonder why come listen to the same old thing day in and day out. If you're in AA in your own hometown, you're going to hear the same people say the same thing. Well, there are two things I'll say there. I remember way back when, before I could admit that I had this problem, and I was asked to give the keynote address at the Diocesan Council of Catholic Women in my hometown in Mobile, Alabama. And they say the prophet is not without honor except in his own country. And Madam President, in front of about 800 beautiful ladies, stood up and gave me a glowing introduction. She finishes and she said, Now, some of us have heard Father Hillary before, and some of us have not. Those of us who have not are looking forward to hearing him now. <laughs> oh, boy. But you see, I think there's something childlike demanded in AA. A childlike faith, a childlike trust, a childlike love. I didn't say childish. You know how little children are? They say, read us or tell us the story, Goldilocks and the Three Bears, and you tell it. Three days later, they say, tell us that story about Goldilocks and the Three Bears, and you start to tell it. And they say, oh, no, that's not the way it goes. And they want to hear it again and again and again, as long as it has a happy ending. And thank God, and you all, my story today still has a happy ending today. I've never made the speech I want to make in AA. Never. I've done, oh, mostly the research. Every time I get asked to give a talk, I, in my own group, I'll say, oh, I'm going to get up there and give them the history of alcoholism, and I'm going to give them the psychology behind it. <laughs> Juby looks at Hoyt, and Hoyt looks at Juby, and I know it's coming, and finally one of them, General Juby, will say, oh, hell, Father Hillary, just stand up there and tell it like it is. <laughs> and if you're real new in this program, you should know that the big book says, our stories reveal in a general way what we used to be like, what happened, what we're like now. And that's what they mean by standing up and telling it like it is. Early on, oh dear Lord, I used to worry about what is alcoholism. I know we heard last night the quotation by that lovely gentleman, Sam, who had to battle with the music. Man, I knew I was in AA for sure last night. <laughs> if you didn't like the speaker, you could listen to the music. <laughs> and exactly two minutes after poor Sam sat down, some genius said, hey, we found out how to turn off the music. <laughs> My kind of people. <laughs> I believe, of course, I do, that alcoholism is a mental obsession coupled with a physical compulsion to drink. Well, fine. I just simply say an alcoholic is a person who gets in trouble because he drinks and gets in trouble because he drinks and gets in trouble because he drinks, and drinks, and gets in trouble because he drinks, and drinks, and gets in trouble. He can get in trouble for other things. But I think a, a social drinker, or whatever, if he got in trouble because he drank, would stop drinking. And I just, just worry, 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 why me? How come I got it? And Juby says, Oh, hell's all here. It don't make no difference how the jackass got into the ditch. Just get him out. 
right, you know. This is really a tremendous breakthrough, this act as if. It doesn't make any difference. Just get it out. Period. I couldn't identify too much with Sam last night. I wasn't a bar drinker. And I don't believe that I had an alcoholic personality. I don't know. Maybe. And I never felt unwanted. The God of my understanding was not a frightening Jehovah. The God whom I was introduced to was a tender, loving God given to me by tender, loving people. Uh, alcohol was present in our home all the time. I was born at a very early age, as I've heard so many AA speakers say, into a good Christian home. I'm not convinced that's anywhere to raise children anymore. But, and uh, alcohol was present in the house all the time. We, we didn't think it was a moral evil to take a drink. Now, make no mistake about it. Us Catholics think that to get drunk is seriously morally wrong, just like the Baptists and some of the Methodists. But, but we did not think that it was morally wrong to take a drink, as long as you didn't get drunk. Had a great big relationship, aunts, oh, eight or nine of them, all built like ice cream cones, had their own population explosion. I got 60 or 70 cousins, place cousins. I can't even count the second one running around in Mobile. And this tribe would come together for weddings and funerals. We had one uncle call him Harry. He's kind of leader of the pack. And, you know, to face that many relatives, Uncle Harry would always take a few drinks to steady his nerves. The only thing is he'd get so steady he couldn't move. And the uncles would have to carry him out. But if anybody was educated to learn how to drink like a gentleman, it was me. The next morning, for example, there were no recriminations. I can remember my mother saying to us kids, you saw Uncle Harry last night. If you discover that's the way alcohol treats you, then you just shouldn't drink. But you saw the rest of your aunts and uncles, perfect ladies and gentlemen. It was there. It was part of our living. I can't remember when I had my first drink, really. I'm sure it was when I was seven or eight years old. A small glass of wine, mostly water, but to be with the other people, it was just there. We didn't have it every day because it was the Depression time, period. Uh, I didn't have any trouble in high school. Uh, you know, that's not belonging. Heavens, I belonged. I was in the band and I could dance and I didn't... Oh, there were people who I saw needed it, but just didn't... I didn't need it, period. That's all there was to it. In... Uh, by third year of high school, my father was dead, God rest his soul. My mother thought I needed some more men in my education, and I say she sold me up the river from Mobile, Alabama, to the tender mercies of the Benedictine monks at Coleman, and I never got away. <laughs> but again, I had a grand time. I came to know the parents, the homes of the boys from Coleman, and you know what? Any housewife worth the name in Coleman in those years knew how to street squeeze the grapes and make that German type grape juice. Only they did it with strawberries. And if you all haven't tasted Coleman County strawberry wine before you got into AA, it's just too late. <laughs> but again, a beautiful situation. You're in somebody's home, have a piece of cake, glass of homemade wine, no trouble. Oh, certainly in my college years, I saw kids who got drunk. We didn't. 
In 41, I joined the monastery. I loved them so much, St. Bernard. The monks of St. Bernard, I wanted to be a part of it. They said, okay. I got in, you know what I found out? The monks of St. Bernard were not about to be outdone by the housewives of Coleman. <laughs> and they made homebrew, too. Now, I wouldn't want you to get the wrong idea and think there's 60 drunk monks at Coleman, Alabama. There's not. Most of them are lovely, lovely people. There's me and a couple of others. But I look back on it, and when, when people were trying to straighten me out, help me straighten myself out, maybe that's a better expression. And they said to me, Father Harry, how much did you drink? I said, huh? They said, how much did you drink? Well, I'm trying to get a little bit more honest. I said, well, I guess I just have to say that after 19 and a half years old, when I went into the monastery, I always drank as much as I could, as long as I could, as long as there was anything there to drink. I never knew once you took the cork out of the bottle, you were supposed to put it back in. We always threw them away. There was no use in keeping the cough. Again, the monks didn't drink that much. It was on the feast days, maybe for an hour in the evening. But I do see today that I was always the first one there and the last one to leave. And I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I was always looking forward to the next time. Along at Christmas time, mind you, I'm 19 and a half years old. We're having a little longer party, maybe three hours of me. We said our prayers. I went, had a great time. The next morning, we're up, went to prayers. During my wake, in the middle of the morning, though, I said, say, something funny happened last night. That party didn't get over till 11.15, 11.30. Last thing I remember is a little after 9 o'clock when four of the monks got up to do the night before Christmas. 9 o'clock, 11.30, 9, 10, 11. Wonder what happened. Well, now, if you're of my persuasion, you know what happened. I began to slip around and try to find out what did happen. You know what I found out? Nothing. That apparently I functioned as normally as I ever functioned. I stayed again until the last shot was fired. I helped the old fathers home with their, and put help, helped up with the kitchen, clean up, went to chapel, said the prayers, went to bed. But again, if you are of my persuasion, then you know what happened. What I've just described is technically called a blackout. For many people, it comes late on in the drinking career. Here I am at 19 and a half years old experiencing a real first-class blackout. And if you're new in this program and you don't know whether you are pregnant or not, then if you have experienced what I have just described, that's almost a Satan, Satan sign that you are. And however you have gotten here, you're in the right place. Oh, I was an intelligent creature, and I had to account for that. Honey, I never said it, I, I never told anybody that until I was six months in AA. I'm convinced that if I hadn't been an alcoholic, the next morning I would have said to somebody, you know what happened to me, and I described it. And maybe they'd said if they'd had any insight, said, hey kid, what you've just described is a Satan, Satan sign that you ought to just leave alcohol alone. And maybe before my will was so damaged, I could have done it. I don't know. I never told anybody about that. I said to myself, it must have been the cheese. 
we cannot distinguish between the true and the false. At 19 and a half years old. Interesting. Go on to study in Kansas, the monks out there, they all belong to the WCTU. They don't drink. Want to bet? I told you I never could qualify as a bar drinker. If I had to be in a category of drinkers, I would have to be categorized as a chicken house drinker. There's a lot going on in the chicken houses of North Alabama than just raising them chickens. And in Kansas, that's where they did it, in the chicken house. I was very interested in how many hens laid how many eggs for several years in Kansas. Hidden drinking, see? The patterns were beginning to emerge. Finished philosophy, I'm back at Coleman doing theology, and guess what? We got a new abbot, and he's dried up the place. They're not squeezing the grape anymore. And so the monks at Coleman don't drink anymore. Want to bet? <laughs> you know, we tried that on a national scale, and it didn't work. How about some of you Alanons tried to dry us up? Huh? Interesting, isn't it? Anyhow, my disease, as I see now, is progressing during these years. But this is, for me, the tolerant years. Had the reputation for being able to drink and never get drunk. Uh, got a hollow leg or something. Can see all the other people home. All that kind of trash. 47, I'm called to be ordained a priest. And I got news for you. If in 47 there had been any overt indications that Hillary Draper was a drunk, the Archbishop would never have ordained me a priest. The Catholic Church has got enough trouble without ordaining drunk monks. <laughs> My drinking is progressing. I don't have to have it every day, but whenever it's available, I love it. I'm sorry. I identified with Sam last night about saying there were some good, some good times in my drinking. There really was. And the doctor says we like the effects. I like the effects. I like that. <laughs> Ten feet tall, you know, I mean, bring on the problems. <laughs> <laughs> with one hand behind me, you know. <laughs> I like the taste. I did. I love to roll it around my teeth. I did. I'm sorry. If that's upsetting to some of you new people in the program, well, I can't, that's my story. I can't help it. I can't help that. I say I don't get in any trouble, but I do. I'm developing these frightful personality clashes with the boss. I think you can have personality clashes without alcohol, but I'm convinced that if alcohol is in the picture, you're not going to resolve the clashes until you do something about the alcohol. I don't do anything about the alcohol. I don't know. i got a problem. I get a geographical cure removal before I know what that is. <laughs> I get sent, well, I might as well confess, I get sent to Barberville, Kentucky. You know, down there in the southeastern corner where Kentucky and Tennessee and Virginia come together around the Cumberland Gap area, what President Johnson some years ago declared a disaster area. I knew it was a disaster in 51. <laughs> oh, don't talk to me. Place more than I'm there, though. The priest I'm replacing says, you take your meals over at Aunt Sally Coon's next door. Now, Aunt Sally Coon belongs to the Lottie Moon section. And she's not a bit happy with the new priest. She's got the old one broken in nicely. 
He says, that house belongs to you, but you're riding the circuit all the time up through Bell County. Harlan had calmed down in the 50s, if you all remember. It was Bell County that was real bad. And says, uh, whenever you're home, you eat your meals with uh, Aunt Sally. All right, we go over to Aunt Sally Coon in the morning. Just have said uh, mass, going over for breakfast. Uh, conversation was a little difficult. Uncle Albert was sitting at the head of the table. That's Aunt Sally's husband. He was a good Catholic. At this end was their son, who was in his 30s, a state trooper. All he had on was a pair of shorts. His kid, 19, that's all he had on. Another kid, 16, me and the other priest. Conversation was difficult. It was a big water tumbler sitting in front of me, beat it up, hot September. I picked the thing up and took two great big gulps. Y'all seen the atomic bomb blast. <laughs> my stomach turned upside down. My eyeballs turned over. My eardrums went in and out. I couldn't breathe. I didn't say a word. <laughs> I just looked. Uncle Albert had one, the other priest had one, and the trooper had one. The kids didn't get it. After breakfast, when we were stepping high over the weeds going back to the church, I said to the priest, what in God's holy name was in that water glass? He said, moonshine, 120 proof. I said, for breakfast? He says, anytime you can get it. Wasn't that a marvelous place to send a budding alcoholic? And I bloomed. Oh, man. This is where I met AA for the first time, too. And there's a certain lady here who knows what, what this means for me to have met her today. She carried the message to a man who carried the message to me in Barberville in 1951 and 2 and 3. I never got the message until 1967. There was a small group just started in Barberville. Eight men, finest men ever met. The priest before me says, you know anything about AA? No, I don't know anything about AA. Well, there are people who got drinking problems. There are none of the members of your congregation there, but the spouses of some of your members, maybe you'd like to work with them. And there was no, you know, digging here. I said, yes, and I went. They gave me the big book to read. They let me go to the open meetings. They gave me the who me. They gave me the 13 questions. I read the whole thing, listened to everything, and said a wonderful program for my brother Tom. They would never let me go to a closed meeting and made me so mad. I thought, you know, I was a big prayer in the Bay A. I mean, I felt sorry for them, those poor devils. I could drink. And those, whatever happened to them, they had just loused it up. They couldn't drink. Poor people. I'm convinced today that many times the subject of the closed meetings in Barberville in those years was what are we going to do with that young priest at the end of Pine Street who walks like a duck, who quacks like a duck, who smells like a duck, and who doesn't know he's a duck? <laughs> After I'd been in AA about two, two and a half years, I made my first conference talk. This is how I found out about it. I was sitting at the desk in the office and I got this letter from Tom P. over in Bolton. Some of you may know him. He's one of my sponsors. This letter was a copy, Thermofax copy, of a letter he had written to somebody over in Mississippi and it said, Dear Woody, Father Hillary will be delighted to speak on the program of the Mississippi State Conference for Alcoholics Anonymous 
in the Heidelberg Hotel at Jackson, Mississippi, August the 1st to the 4th. Paragraph. I know, for I shall bring him. Paragraph. It doesn't matter where you put him on the program, because we will be there from the beginning, and we will stay to the end. Sincerely yours, Tom Pete. Now, I read that letter, and I'm telling you the truth. I'd been two years and over. It was two and a half years, I think. And I read that letter, and I said, I can't do that. I cannot, I can't, I, as I just can't do that. I can't go over in Bishop Jarreau's backyard and stand up and say, my name is Father Hillary and I am an alcoholic. I can't do it. Well, you know, I talk to myself. I don't know about you all. I did when I was drunk and I still do. <laughs> and frankly, I enjoy the conversation. Much more than some of the things I hear on television. And the other part of me says, oh, you can't go. I says, no, I can't go. Then it says, uh, mm-hmm, uh, who, uh, who was it went to Cumberland Falls in 1954 to a tri-state convention in front of some 600 people and spoke in his arrogant ignorance as a friend of AA? <laughs> I said, I wish you wouldn't bring that up. <laughs> And then he says, well, I said, all right, okay, all right, I'll go. Maybe, maybe it'll be a chance some way to make amends uh, for the arrogance and the pride. Oh, God, help us. Made me stand up in front of gorgeous people, sincere people, honest people in this program, and me. God help me. A friend of AA. I, for a long time, I couldn't stand friends of AA. <laughs> and again, you taught me. I love them today. We need all the friends we can get. And I love them. I love them. Oh, boy. I came back to Coleman, this time as dean of the college, but my alcoholism has really progressed. Now I've got to have it. Now I don't have to drink it every day yet, but it's got to be there in the closet in case of snake bites or other emergencies. And if the one bottle's gone, I've got to get another one right quick. And I look at it today and I know this. I say a social drinker. Social drinker implies that you're going to do it with somebody else. Well, unless I had two fists, you weren't going to get asked to have a drink. There was one for me and you to wake on, and then one for me, you know, when you left. And I didn't think that was odd. Isn't that funny? I never, and I can say this earlier on, I never had any trouble with the second step. When they told me I was nuts, I, I was the happiest person alive. I mean that. Had a lot of trouble with the first step. But the second step, power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. Boy, oh boy, oh boy. The drinking is, it's a part of me now. I say I don't get in any trouble, but these frightful personality clashes are developing again. By this time, I'm convinced the boss knows that alcohol is in my life, that it is a problem. He's not, he won't face me with it. He better not. Man, if he had said one word to me in those years about drinking too much, I'd have been on him like a bee on a bulldog. So what you talking about me? 
I do my work every day. Go over there and get some of those lazy, good-for-nothing people that are doing that. You know. And he doesn't. God help us. I wish, you know, that I'm a great believer in intervention. As I think it was Bill said, for God's sake, don't let them die. I really believe this. Maybe in today's world especially, that we should intervene. That's just me. If you don't agree with that, that's okay. Nobody intervenes. I get another geographical cure removal, this time to the delta of the Mississippi. Now, I always thought that was in southwest Louisiana, but it's not. It begins in the lobby of the Peabody Hotel in Memphis, Tennessee. And it extends down the river, 40 miles on the Mississippi side and, four, and 20 miles on the Arkansas side if you come to Yazoo City. And if you think you know the south and you haven't lived in the delta of the Mississippi, you don't know nothing. Those people don't know the Civil War was lost. They don't even know it was fought and couldn't care less. This was the 60s. Long, dry, hot summers. Mississippi was dry. I thought I had come to paradise. Pick up the telephone and say, Mamie. she say, be right there, Paul. Father Malachi tells me when I tell you that, I must be sure you understand that Mamie was the bootlegger. I mean, did you all ever have trouble with the empty bottles? Every time I opened the closet door, it was full of empties. I was convinced somebody was putting empty bottles in my closet. I couldn't have drunk that much. I had to... In Kentucky, Mamie would come and take the empties out, pull, put the full ones in, send your bill at the end of the month. A marvelous. Had it made in the shade. I thought. I agree with Sam and the people who say we come apart spiritually, mentally, and last of all, physically. And by this time, ladies and gentlemen, I had really begun to come apart spiritually. And I think to some extent already mentally. But spiritually, oh, mercy, mercy. By this time, I had to admit I had a problem because other people were telling me I had a problem. Other priests were saying to me, Father Henry, you know, the other night at the 40 hours devotion, afterwards at supper, you couldn't drive that car home. You're drinking too much. You better watch it. This is not news to you, but you'd be, it has a special twist. Uh, How many of y'all lost the automobile? You know? But I say special twist to me because they're saying, Where did you put the car? It doesn't belong to you. I don't know where I put the car. Oh, I used to hate that. Look out there and there's no car. Where's the car? I don't know where the car is. Oh yeah, it's funny now, but it wasn't funny then. What you gonna do if you are, say, a deacon in the Baptist church? A steward in the Methodist Church, an elder of the Presbyterian Church, um, a member of the parish council, if you discover incontrovertibly that the pastors are drunk, you're going to tell it? Especially in the Catholic Church where the priest still signs the checks. You're going to bail that cat? You're looking at one that got bailed. 
three of the finest men I ever knew in that parish in Kentucky, in uh, Mississippi, Shaw, came to me, and I know what it cost them today. And they said, Father Hillary, we love you very much, and we think you have done a marvelous job in this chase. But there is no way you can deny at Mrs. So-and-so's wedding you had too much to drink. That's the way they put it. What they meant, you were falling down drunk. <laughs> and at the reception following so-and-so, you were drunk in public. Oh, boy. But now listen to the rest of it. They said, now, we're not going to the bishop over this because we know that with a little willpower, <laughs> the grace of God, prayer, and the sacraments, you can get on top of this. And I believed them, the more fool I. What willpower did I have left? I could no more stop drinking. You think, how about you, Alka? I, I, I wanted to stop. I kept saying to myself, I can stop, but I couldn't. But I wanted to. What willpower did I have left? I had made a mockery of the sacraments. Prayer, the only prayer I knew how to say was, Dear God, get me out of this one and I'll never do it again. And Juby says, Oh, hell, Father Hillary, God ain't no horse trader. He don't need your damn horses. <laughs> That's not what AA says. That's not the kind of prayer you pray in AA. God, you do this and I'll do that. I'll do that and you do this. That's not what it says in AA. I know. They should have gone right straight to the bishop in Jackson and said, Bishop, come down to Shaw because you have got a drunk monk who's passing down there and he's not going to get any better. He's going to get wasted. Oh, I can't go into all of it. It'd... More blackout. The one I wasn't killed or didn't kill somebody else. I still thought I had some measure of control. Lent came. I said, I won't drink for Lent. Oh, he said, well, the board of trustees at St. Bernard College has named you as the president. And the boss said he's not met you. And before he acted on the nomination, he'd like to come over and interview you. And he told me last night before we retired that he was well satisfied. He's going to accept the nomination. You know, I got the nomination. And I'm convinced again, if I hadn't been an alcoholic, I'd have said, no, I cannot do that with my track record. No. But what does this arrogant, egotistical, proud alcoholic say? Certainly I'll take it. That'll show these people whether I'm a drunk or not. You think they'd be inviting a drunk to take the presidency of the college? They give me a glorious send-off. I know today they were saying, thank God he's gone. <laughs> but again... Through the grace of God, the principles of this program, people like you, I've been able to make amends. I can hold my head up in Mississippi again. I made amends to the three men who came and told me. And I became president of the college. <laughs> and I said to myself, now, Hillary, you may just have a little drinking problem, you know? And you better watch it. No, boy. I'm telling you the truth. I had read that you couldn't get drunk on beer. So I decided I was going to drink nothing but beer. You know what? 
I don't know about you all, but I can get drunk on beer. <laughs> it takes a little longer, but I can get drunk on beer. And just as sick, too. So I decided if the effects were the same, there's no sense in just drinking beer. I rationalized that one out. They told me I should drink only scotch. I drank only scotch. He said, you won't have the hangovers. Your head won't hurt so bad. You know what? It hurt worse. <laughs> so I gave up. I always drank whatever there was. That's true. But if I had my druthers, it would be bourbon. And I never wanted that 86 proof stuff. At least 100. See, that's what you all taught me here in Kentucky with that moonshine. Or... <laughs> uh, I'm coming to park mentally now. I mean, yeah. I guess one of them, I'll never forget this one to my dying day. I came into the office, president of the college, on a Monday morning. I looked on the appointment book and it said, 10.30 a.m., Huntsville Airport. Huntsville's about 40 miles away from us. I called my secretary, I said, Miss Hart, what's this appointment in Huntsville? She says, oh, Father, I don't know. You must have made that after I left on Friday afternoon. <laughs> I don't know if I'm supposed to be catching an airplane, leaving, and I don't know if I am where I'm going to. <laughs> I don't know if I'm supposed to meet somebody in Huntsville at the airport at 10.30. If I do, I don't know who it is and where they're coming from. I don't know if I'm supposed to be at a meeting in the Huntsville airport, and if that's true, I don't know what it's about. Huh? Now, I'm telling you, that'll give you the sweat. <laughs> oh, I, I, can't, I, won't, I can't forget that moment. That was 8 o'clock when it dawned on me I needed to be the... For what? What am I... I got dressed. I waited as long as I dared, which was about 9.45, and I'm going out to get in the car to go to Huntsville for what I know not. Just as I'm getting in the car, the secretary says, Father, telephone long distance. Went back and the man says, Father Hillary, I'm the gentleman you spoke to Friday. Unfortunately, I can't keep our appointment this morning. I said, well, that's just awful. <laughs> I don't know to this day what the appointment was about. And I don't know whether that man recognized after we hung up that I was drunk talking to him on the phone. I don't know who he was. I don't know what it was all about. I don't know. Maybe I lost a million dollars for the college. I don't know. I don't know. The, the end finally came in December of 1967 when the president of the college was supposed to make a State of the Union message in front of the Board of Trustees, the Board of Governors, the faculty, the Student Government Association, name the important people, and they were there at 8 o'clock after supper. The last thing I remember was four o'clock in the afternoon taking one more drink to steady my nerves. And I don't remember, as God is my witness, another thing until the next morning. But I made the speech. I'm walking around that campus the next morning, figuratively, with my throat slit from my ear to ear, and I don't even know it. I do detect a little coolness in the atmosphere. <laughs> a few days later, I'm still running, you know. Man, we run, at least I do. Kind of dust throwing, you know. Gee, hey, cunning, baffling, powerful. I prance into the chancellor's office, the abbot, and I got six pro projects going on at once. He listens and finally says, you're through? I said, yeah. He said, well, would you just sit back in that chair? I've got something to say to you. 
And he says, I sat back, and I really, I didn't know it was coming. He said, we had a meeting of the Board of Trustees yesterday. I said, you did, nasty, brassy, bold. I said, I'm on the Board of Trustees. I wasn't informed. I wasn't here. He said, I know, but there was a quorum. I said, what was on the agenda? He says, only one item, your resignation. Still mean, nasty. I said, when is it effective? In June? And he looked at me with all the compassion because he had tried. He didn't even know what alcoholism is. He had tried to say things to me. And man, I wouldn't let him talk to me. One time he told me we were coming back from Birmingham. And thank God we'd gotten on the campus, on the plantation. I was driving. He says, you know what I think? I said, no. I'd had a bad episode and it wasn't hidden and he knew it. And I said, I just think that maybe you are one of the people who will simply not be able to take another drink as long as you live. I nearly wrecked the car. He doesn't know how close we came to death. I mean, the thought that I would never be able to take another drink in my life. My God in heaven, I couldn't get him out of the car fast enough to go get another drink. Man, that just wrecked my nerves. And here he is, he's saying, the only thing on the agenda is your resignation, and it is effective right now, sign here. You're an excellent teacher, and I'll try to help you get a job anywhere in the country, but you cannot stay here. You have disgraced your own good name, the name of the priesthood. You've dragged the name of this college down, down. You can't stay here. I don't know whether you understand that or not. But I told you the things that I love the most in life. The priesthood, St. Bernard. That day in December, said to me, I'll help you get a job anywhere in the country. But what I wish you'd do is go somewhere and get some help with your drinking problem. Doesn't even know the word alcoholism. I could not have refused that firing. I was gone. I could have refused that second wish. And I do not know to this day, ladies and gentlemen, whether I was so sick and tired. Don't talk to me about high-bottom drunks. I, I just think if you keep on going long enough, don't talk to me about uh, the shakes and not being able to stay in the bed, not being able to stay up, the running fits. Don't talk to me about the hallucinations. I had a, a steam radiator that played the most gorgeous symphony music you ever heard in your life. Don't talk to me about not hearing the telephone when it rings or being afraid to answer it when it does ring. Don't talk to me about when man says good morning, you're thinking, what's he after? Don't talk to me about jail. I've been there. I'm not proud of it. We're anonymous. And some priests, brethren, friends of mine who have found Alcoholics Anonymous frequently come dressed up in good-looking folk clothes. I wish I could, but that's the hang-up of mine. I never took this off when I was drinking. And I will not take it off when I stand with my brethren in AA. If this bothers you, that's your problem, not mine. I said, yes, I'd go. I don't know. Sick and tired of being sick and tired. And he had heard of a place named Hazelden. And he said they did something to cure alcoholics. And I said, okay, I'd go. I didn't know whether the 
operated on you, cut something out, give you injections, nothing. I didn't know. I was lucky. There are gold-plated mousetraps in this country that will dry you out, fill you full of pills, and turn you loose to run again. I stumbled into AA. There's no such thing as AA treatment centers as such, but Hazelden at that time, nine, eight out of ten of the personnel were recovering alcoholics. And all they did was take you through the first five steps of AA. Three meetings a day. Mounting noon and night. Supposed to be a three-week program. Second day I was saying, they said to me, Father, now don't you plan on three weeks. Now if this man bothers you, I'm sorry, I thought I could get through with it. But when I was drinking, I had the shakes and the hot flashes. I don't shake anymore. Look at that hand. But man, I still have the hot flashes. You only recover so much. Anyhow, the man says, don't plan on two, three weeks. I said, oh no, I reckon I'll get it in two. Oh no, he says, we mean the other way around. Said, you, you, you people, doctors, lawyers, Indian chiefs, undertakers, salesmen, college teachers, uh, they take three and four times as long. I said, why? They said, because you all put up such a terrible facade, it takes a long time to get back there and find out where the real Father Henry lives. And this is the last time we told you, Father, you ain't nothing. <laughs> you know what? I was one of the slowest learners they ever had. <laughs> they were right. Every time I'd read the big book, go see the man, got the first step. I'd say, yeah, I got the first step. And he talked to me, he said, you ain't got the first step. Get back there and do some more reading. They kept me on the first step a month, all day long, three meetings a day. I'm a great believer in going to meetings. I tell you, if you're new in this program, all I'm saying, for me to get dry, it took three meetings a day, nine weeks. They finally got me, I got to the fourth step. And you know the big book says you take a moral inventory and you write it down. Ooh, I didn't like that. I did it, wrote it down. Took it to the man, he says, mm, you've made another mistake. You've taken an immoral inventory. <laughs> now he says, that's all right, we'll save that, go get the moral part of it. <laughs> Sitting up there and one beautiful man's talking to us and he says, 120 of us at that time, every walk in life, and he says, you all are the dumbest alcoholics God ever put breath into. That made me so mad I couldn't see straight. He says, here you are, paying us a fortune up here in Hazelden for something you could have gotten in any AA club room in the country, but you were too damn dumb to get it. You had to come up here and pay for it. And the man was right. I'm convinced the man was right. I think they were right too. I had not gotten step one. I didn't begin to get step one for a year. After all I went through in that treatment center, they wouldn't let me come. Well, that's the next thing. The fifth step, after I took that, they said, now, when you go back to Coleman, are you going to tell people you believe this is a disease, you're an alcoholic? I said, of course not. That's the stupidest question I ever heard of. You don't understand the South. We don't run around with a big sign on, look out for me, I got tuberculosis. Person go in the hospital, we don't say what you're in there for, it's your business. No, I'm not going to tell people I'm an alcoholic. And furthermore, you know I can't go back to Coleman. You know, mind you, I told you, the things I love the most are the priesthood in St. Bernard. St. Bernard's at Coleman. I'm saying I can't go back to Coleman. They said, why can't you go back to Coleman? I said, you know why I can't go back to Coleman. 
said, why can't you go back to Coleman? I... The man said, were you running around with women, father? <laughs> I said, no. He said, did you embezzle the college's money? I said, no. They said, so you lost the job as president of the college. You were thrown literally out of the priesthood because of the disease of alcoholism. The president of the bank in Coleman might have lost the job because of alcoholism. Nine times out of ten, he'd have to go back, not as president of the bank, but he'd have to go back and pick up the pieces. When are you going to stop running? I said, all right, I give up. I'll go back to Coleman. Now, you convince the board of trustees to let me come back. We've had priests with drinking problems before. If whatever way they could get back on top of it, they never returned to the scene of the crime. We sent them to New Mexico. <laughs> Start a new life. And here these people were saying, you go back to Coleman. I said, okay, convince the board of trustees. You know what? They did. And the board did. And I did. Lord have mercy. But when I finally got back to Coleman, I looked in the telephone book for AA. They weren't listed. <laughs> so I said, well, I'll read the big book every day. I'll read the 24-hour book. I'll do a little judicious 12-stepping with some people that I know really need this program. And I did. It was one year to the day before I got to the noble group of alcoholics at Coleman, Alabama. I stayed dry one year, exactly. I'm convinced I couldn't have gone much longer. And there was a priest, a marvelous man who was not an alcoholic, very close to me, and he kept saying to me, hey, aren't you supposed to be doing something for this disease? I mean, aren't you supposed to be going to meetings or something? I said, yeah, but there's no AA in Coleman. He said, why don't you go up to Decatur? That's only 30 miles away. I said, I'm reading a big book. I'm doing all right. I'm convinced he could see that I was deteriorating, that my thinking was getting bad. I'm convinced of that. And one day he walked up to me, handed me a little piece of paper. He said, and he looked so disgusted. He said, there's a telephone number here. It says, for your information, AA is alive and well in Coleman and has been doing fine for the past six years. Call this number. And, and I really mean that. He kept asking me. It took me about three days to call that number. I finally called it, and Juby answered. And I said, I am an alcoholic. And he said, are you drunk? I said, no. <laughs> you know, pride. I said, no. He said, well, we've got a meeting tonight. I'll come get you. So exactly one year... After I took my last drink, I got really into Alcoholics Anonymous. And since that time, I have tried to work the steps. I began to know what it really was to take the first step. And, and for me, that was really important. I, I made so many classical mistakes in AA. But thank God they were just as tolerant as they could be of me. I'll never forget, I... After I left the treatment center, they sent me to New England and told them the school year would be over. And I got in with some alcoholic priests up there, and they were beautiful people. And when I was leaving New England and knew I had to go back to Alabama, I said to this one priest who had been in AA for years and who was helping other priests, I said, Now, Father, 
I'm going back to Alabama, and I know they haven't got any alcoholic, uh, any group of priests in Alabama. I know a lot of priests who need it. When I get back, you think I ought to start a new group right away? At this time, I had been dry about 90 days. And that good man looked at me, and he said, sit down, Father Henry. And I said, he says, now I suggest that when you go back to Coleman, you try to find an AA club that will let you in. <laughs> and if you find one, I suggest that you get in and find a corner and sit down and keep your mouth shut for one year. He says, if at the end of the year you find that you are still sober, then you might begin to start to think about starting a new group. I mean, that's been the history of my life in AA. All the classical mistakes. Imagine me, you know, the priest. One night in a closed meeting, I said to that Coleman group, I'm tired of hearing about this. My life is unmanageable. If I don't manage it, who's going to? This silence, you know. And Juby looks at Hoyt, and Hoyt looks at Juby. And they say, well, Father, and they're foot-washing Baptists and Church of Christ members. <laughs> they said, well, Father, there's two steps. One of them said, thought through prayer and meditation to improve their wilderness. And the other one was the third step, which said, made a decision to take. I mean, you know, some people get better quicker than others. I just was slow. I was just slow. But I'm going to quit now. It has been the most marvelous thing in the world to me once I got into AA. And that is to let people come close enough to me to try to help me. To to love me enough to teach me how to love somebody else. It's AA who's given me back the God of my understanding. It's AA who's let me once again learn how to pray. It's AA who's taught me to try to find the will of God and pray for the power to carry that out. Nobody wants a drunk, but nobody, and especially not a drunk preacher. Nobody wants them. I need AA today like I never needed it before. My sponsors tell me I have to tell you this. What's happened to me? I suppose the biggest thing is two years ago now, come August, we're in August, two years ago, the monks of St. Bernard elected me the seventh abbot of St. Bernard and the chancellor of the college. <laughs> that, that's, that's what this ring and this chain is all about. You know? And to me, that says something special about the monks of St. Bernard. And I have never felt the need of AA as much a day at a time as since I have been the abbot of St. Bernard. Oh, I love the conferences. I'd go to one every week if I could. But I, I realize, of course, that's, as somebody said, the icing on the cake, and it is. But where it's at, it's in your own home group. And, and I want to be known as a member of the common group of Alcoholics Anonymous. That's the only thing that lets me live a day at a time. Ha-ha, <laughs> I'm right on schedule. I may not make, I want to go into the commercial and then have done. 
I'm going to tell you this, it may take longer than two minutes. I started talking at ten minutes after three, and it's now eight minutes after four. So I'm going to stay within an hour, because we at Coleman are very nervous alcoholics, and we can't stand much more than an hour of talking. We things just, you know. <laughs> I'm a preacher, so I'm going to refer to the other big book. There's a place named Bethany, and there was a family lived in Bethany, two sisters and a brother, Martha and Mary and Lazarus. If you read the scriptures, they were great friends of Christ, the rabbis. And whenever things were really pressing on him, you can see him going down to spend the weekend with Martha and Mary and Lazarus. Well, Lazarus got real sick. Christ wasn't there. You got to get this Martha in perspective. This Martha was the one you know who had fussed about that lazy bones may rest. And Christ had said to her, Martha, Martha, thou art worried about many things. Only one thing is necessary, and Mary's chosen the better part, which won't be taken away from her. But Martha's got personality problems, and uh, she doesn't change overnight. And she sent word down there in Galilee to that hot shot rabbi that Lazarus is sick. I mean, she knows that he's done great things for other people, so she's expecting him any day. He doesn't come. Lazarus died. Where's that big-time friend of the house? Where's that big-time man that's eating us out of house and home, all them fried chickens he's eating up down here? When we need him, where is he? I mean, that's not in the Scriptures. But if you read carefully, you get Martha's character. That's what's going through Martha's mind. Because when he finally comes, she's eyeballing down the road. And there he is. And she prances out. And you have to hear what I think is a sarcasm in her voice. Rabbi, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. And I'll say this. Oh, Martha, I believe, never came so close to getting a real swift. <laughs> but that infinite love and wisdom says, Martha, thy brother shall live again. And then Martha changes in that instant. And she says, Yea, Lord, I know, I know. So on the last day, I shall see him again. I know. I think Martha just doesn't know how close she came to missing the whole ball game. But she's at it again, see? She had, she's got maybe the first step, but she's got a lot of other problems to go on with. And Christ says he wants to go out to the tomb. And when he gets out there, he tells them to roll the stone back. And here's Martha again. He's been in there four days. By this time, he stinks. <laughs> but they do it. And it's Lazarus Vanifora. Ladies and gentlemen, I submit that I stink. But I surely do know what Lazarus felt like when he walked out of that tomb. Thank you.